This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. This is part two of our uh, conversation with Mr. Peter Atkins about the original version of Hellraiser 4. We are going to pick things right up where we left off in episode one. The whole reason that we were even like, oh, hey, this would be a great time to talk about Hellraiser 4 is you just released your original script mm -hmm. as a book. Do you want to talk about yeah. that a little bit? Uh, sure. Um, I, I guess the I mean, question is, how did that even end up happening? Right, sure. Um, happy accident, like everything. Um, a company, um, 
a feisty little independent publisher called Encyclopocalypse. That's a mouthful. Encyclopocalypse <laughs> Publications, um, which actually was founded by Mark Miller, who small world Encyclopocalypse has nothing to do with Clive, but Mark used to run Seraphim, which was Clive's production company. So that's just a weird connection. Um, but post-Seraphim, Mark started what was going to be essentially an audiobook company because he realized there was, as a lot of young entrepreneurs have realized, there's an awful lot of these classic, well, classic to people like us, um, <laughs> paperbacks from hell lying around um, that um, don't have audiobooks. So he spent a year building this company up doing just audiobooks and then started branching out into print books and ebooks. And they he licensed the reprint rights to, and this'll be this'll be great for you, Steve, because I know you're one of the or the producer of the of the movie tie-in documentary. <laughs> um, they and Psychopocalypse licensed, let me get the sequence right. Mark had an existing relationship with Brian Usner, I think, and with Tom Holland. He'd worked for Tom Holland. So he licensed the reprint rights to Fright Night and Reanimator, um, the, the reprint rights to the novelizations of those movies. Uh, the novelization of Reanimator was, I think, Jeff Rovin. Um, Steve would know all of these, of course. And the novelization of Fright Night closing the circle again with Skip Inspector. Um, and a little over a year ago, um, Mark, oh, and, and Mark had been kind enough to pick up my backlist for audiobooks. Um, Doug Bradley narrated my novel Morningstar as an audiobook. I, I was narrating my collection, Rumors of the Marvels. Then the pandemic hit and shut everything down. But we got, we got Morningstar out at least. Because uh, Doug is more efficient than me, <laughs> and had completed his recording, um, so I I had a relationship established with Mark and his company, and then after they'd done these reprints, he said, um, "Hey, you never did. An, there was never a novelization of Wishmaster, and there wasn't. He was right. And I mean, I might have scuppered it because I actually published the script in in, in 1999." Um, or nobody wanted to. <laughs> I mean, like I make it sound like, oh yes, they were they were beating down the door, but I ruined it by publishing. I don't think anybody was interested. But Mark said, "Can we novelize the script?" So I said, "Sure." You know, I mean, technically, I don't have the novelization rights. I have the publication rights to the script, um, but uh, he sorted it out and. Uh, they did a novelization of Wishmaster. And what I can take credit for, and you'll be proud of me, Steve, is, hang on. <laughs> yeah, I do have it. Um, they, they would do, as most companies do these days, they do their books as, again, inside baseball, what we call trade paperbacks, which means the oversized paperback that is really a hard cover in soft covers. And I said, you can only do Wishmaster if you promise me you'll do a rack size paperback, which is, you know, the classic paperback that people my age grew up with. And I guess even people your age grew up with, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so I forced them into 
the oh, look at that. mass market size. That's beautiful. Which they then, <laughs> and they ran with it. They then went back and reprinted the reprints of Fright Night and Reanimator in the mass market size. And and they've and then Christian Francis was the guy who did the novelization of Wishmaster. He then did Titan Find, you know, the, the Bill Malone movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know how obscure you guys can be, but um, so Steve gets Christian very novelized. Obscure. Right. Yeah, we, we've had <laughs> him on our novel. show actually. Yeah. yeah. So, right. Um, <laughs> so he did Titan Find, mm-hmm. and then Mark calls me and says, "Can we do Hellraiser 4? And I said, "Well, no, actually, you can't um, because." Uh, when Clive created Hellraiser, again, I know you guys know this, he didn't create it by writing and directing the movie. He created it by writing the novella, The Hellbound Heart, which meant that when um, New World ponied up the money to do, to, to make a movie, Clive retained the literary rights. So I said, you know, I'm as ready to screw a film company out of uh, the rights <laughs> as the next screenwriting wretch, but uh, but I'm not going <laughs> to screw Clive out of his rights. Um, and Mark said, oh, oh, too bad. And then I said, partly, not as a joke so much, just as a no hard feelings thing. I said, you could publish the script. And he said, oh, that's not literary? And I said, no, of course not. Scripts aren't works of literature. They're just fucking blueprints, don't you know? Um, no, I explained the legal definition of what was literary work and what was blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I, because I got the single card, I know you guys know how this works. Because I got the single card written by credit, thanks to the union, WGA, we have, as you guys know, separation of rights for publication. And it just in case Miramax's lawyers are watching your podcast, I'm sure they're <laughs> avid fans. Um, uh, I should be clear, the copyright in Hellraiser Bloodline, the film, belongs to and remains the property of Miramax LLC. I do not have the copyright, but thanks to the WGA separation of rights agreement, I have the publication rights. So... Um, so that was why it was like that. Um, Mark and I had sort of nudged each other into this little pocket of retro mass market paperback movie tie-in things, and then so we ended up doing this, which uh, is again mass market. Here it is. Looks like a movie tie-in book. Feels like a movie tie-in book. <laughs> mm-hmm. But look, it's ugly. It's a screenplay, <laughs> not a novelization. <laughs> But my rationalization was nobody reads these things. They're just movie collectibles. <laughs> um, so well, there's a lot I, of collectors I, I, out there, though. So. People have been really kind about it. And um, well, so I like kind how you that call it. They're now saying, why aren't you doing two and three? <laughs> and, and the reason, of course, is I don't have a beef with two and three. It's like, it, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to do them if people are interested, of course. But the, the Hellraiser 2 that you see, you know, screenwriters' usual little bitches aside, is pretty much, you know, 97.3% the Hellraiser 2 I wrote. And Hellraiser 3 is like 97.3% the Hellraiser 3 I wrote. So, so 
speaking personally, I don't feel any need to rehabilitate Hellraiser 2 and Hellraiser 3. You know, it's like, no, I, I didn't write a, a script to be published. I wrote a movie and you can see those movies. But Hellraiser 4, um, you know, it was very canny of Mark to make Hellraiser 4 the request <laughs> because he knew <laughs> that the movie was a disappointment to many of us in many ways. So, um, so I was happy to let that one be published because, you know, you can hate it um, and, you, and you can blame me for that if you hate it. But in some way, this, um, uh, I hope, retroactively absolves me of the blame for the Alan Smithy movie. And let me be clear, also absolved of any blame is beautiful talent Kevin Yeager, who, as you know, was the real director, uh, who was forced by circumstance to end up taking the Alan Smithy credit because Merrimack ruined his life for <laughs> six weeks while we were shooting the damn thing. Um, I mean, that that's my joke in the book, actually. My intro to the script is called The Writer's Cut because... Which I, I, I love that you call it that. <laughs> yeah, Something well, you don't hear a well, lot we about writers movies. would like that, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. We, we'd like writers' cut of, of everything. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but it was specifically because, I, you know, I do keep seeing... And I, it's like I break their little hearts. It's horrible. You get these... I mean, it's really sweet for a guy my age that you get new generations that still love these pictures, which is fantastic. And... Um, and I see them on the message message boards. God, that dates me, doesn't it? I see them <laughs> on the uh, in the Facebook groups, um, saying, just making these wishes that oh, one day maybe we'll get to see Kevin Yeager's director's cut, and you won't, because um, you know you you could you could make an assembly that would put some narrative coherence back in, but you'd be missing scores of effect shots and several major sequences, which Kevin just didn't get to shoot because they, they were, I don't know what the hell happened. They were literally slicing his budget on, it seems in retrospect, like a daily basis. Um, and I, I tried to be a team player. I stayed on board for about the first two and a half weeks of the shoot. I was getting daily phone calls from the producer who will not be named here, um, <laughs> saying, we can't shoot this. So and so it was basically stitch up the wound. You know, they, they were hacking things out of the script and asking me to stitch up the wounds. Was it all budget? Was that why they were cutting Apparently, everything? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. It, it seems, well, I've told this, I've told many of these stories before, actually. And I apologize to any of your viewers who've seen me tell these stories before, but as Bill Nolan used to say to me, it's always somebody's first time hearing this shit. <laughs> yeah, so, it's true. <laughs> um, the, I smelled a rat when <clears throat> the producer who Merrimax had brought on, this is literally about 10 days before they started shooting. Uh, she called me up and said, sounding kind of angry. I've just budgeted your script which should have been a red flag in itself. It's like, we're <laughs> 10 days away from her. What do you mean you just budgeted the fucking script? But I didn't say this. Um, she said, I've just budgeted your script. And the special effects alone are three times, are going to cost three times the budget for the movie. And I said, thinking I was being humorous, 
really? Who did you, who did you get a quote from? ILM? <laughs> I should explain to young people, ILM was George Lucas's visual effects company, the most expensive effects house in the industry. So I say, as a joke, who did you get a quote from, ILM? And she says, yeah. <laughs> and I thought at that point, oh, we are fucked. We are in such trouble because that's not how you make a low-budget horror movie. You get, you get people who love to work with their hands to make shit out of prosthetics and shove it on actors' faces uh, for peanuts. Um, so, so there was a budgetary issue, I guess. I mean, I, I, I really don't know precisely what the issue was, but I, I know that they were hacking it to pieces and eventually I quit. I said, I can't, I can't do it. Um, and I felt bad that I'd left Kevin in the lurch, though, you know, he gave me his blessing. He was getting angry enough himself. Um, and eventually, as, as you know, he would, well, I shouldn't say bail. I mean, he was driven out. Um, Balin makes him sound like a, a quitter, which, but he, you know, he eventually said, my name's not on this picture and took well, me on. I don't even feel like it's really quitting if you're refusing to do reshoots. Like he shot the yeah, movie, right? right? And then right. they were like, wait, we want to change all this stuff. And he's like, well, okay, have someone else do it. I don't want to. Sure. Well, he sure. was also already oh. attached to do uh, Sleepy Hollow. He wrote it and he was going to direct it. So he Correct. was like, and this was taking years. Like it, this <laughs> was going on way too long. Because I think he got the script like in... I forgot when I think it was like in 93 or something. He got the script and then you guys shot in August 94. And then the first cut he delivered was in December 94. And he reworked no. it until March. That's it what I, I was. I'm it must have been a couple. Are you sure about the years? It lapse, took, it so. took, it took a long time from when right. it was shot to when it came out. Like a lot of, like there was a lot of issues. Like the one thing I keep reading that just, drives me crazy when, when i read your script and, I, and then i read what actually what, what happened if this is true is that the studio got the studio green lights the script you guys he delivers his cut and they're like where's pinhead he's not in this movie until 40 minutes right, right. and then all of a sudden the funniest thing is is when you watch the theatrical version pinhead is literally in like the first 10 seconds sure. <laughs> they show him and then they show him again at the four minute mark but the movie, right. but the movie was supposed to be about like wasn't Angelique was supposed to be like the first part of the movie and then you get yeah. into Pinhead oh, oh, later. Yeah. No, exactly. There are people who like Bloodline, as is. They're going to be very disappointed in my script because it is <laughs> it's very linear. My it's um in my in my and Clive's heads, Hellraiser because we really you know, we thought it was all over. You know, we're like back then, we hadn't really had. Nightmare 7, Friday the 13th, Part 8. You know, it's like, we, in fact, we thought it was over with Part 3. You know, we thought, well, God, we milked that fucker, didn't we? We got three <laughs> movies out of this. Mm -hmm. um, so we were surprised that they were even going to do a Hellraiser 4. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like Innocence Abroad. We weren't that surprised because they were doing well. But, I mean, it, we weren't planning for it. Um, and part of the reason that Hellraiser 4 has three time periods is that it was began as a little gag Clive and I were talking. Um, and I said, well, what are we going to do now? You know, we, we, 
I, I thought I'd wrapped it up with Hellraiser 3. Um, <laughs> I, I put Penhead back in hell. You know, I reunited Elliot Spencer and him. Um, and then I get, and I said, so we've got to somehow bookend the movies we've got because, you know, it's, it's a trilogy. And then Clive sparked on me saying bookends and said, oh, yeah, right, past, present, and future, which, I'll be honest, wasn't really what I'd meant. Um, <laughs> but he said past, present, and future. And I said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And um, why am I saying this? Oh, because, and then I said, so this is the second trilogy. When he said past, present, and future, I said, so we'll do a second trilogy, um, but there'll be <laughs> half-hour movies. And that's what I wrote the script as. It was like a half-hour movie set in pre-revolutionary France, followed by a half-hour movie set in the present day, followed by a half-hour movie set, yes, folks, in space. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, the, and the through line was... Clive's original thought for the past was Jack the Ripper. He said, let's do Victorian London with Jack the Ripper. And uh, so it was his idea to do the three time periods, full credit to him for that. But I will take credit for saying, wait, you've already invented a toy maker. Why the fuck mess about with Jack the Ripper? Not in the previous movies, but in the novella Hellbound Heart, Clive had at least mentioned, it was sort of an off-screen part, but he'd mentioned the toy maker, Philip Le Marchand. And I said, so why don't we make the past pre-revolutionary France the toy maker, and then the bloodline continues. Um, so it, it, it wasn't three separate movies. It was the descendants of, well, you know what it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but but that, was, that was kind of our little gag, that it was like we're making the second trilogy, but we're making it tight. We're making three 30-minute movies to, to, as I say, bookend. So the, the first bit happens before Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3, and then Act 2, the present day, picks up, you mentioned earlier, Steve, the, the skyscraper that grows from the box. Um, so we then find out that the descendants of La Marchand designed that building, um, which is where Joey had buried the box. And Angelique, this really is, really is minutious <laughs> stuff, isn't it? But, uh, so, but, but that, was, that was the idea. And then, um, yeah, and, and Kevin came on board he was i think we met briefly yeah we had a lot of people in common we'd met briefly one time because he was a lovely guy and um i was thrilled that he came on board because he, he liked the script enough that he said yeah i want to do this and then they um it did not go well you know i remember, I remember being in uh miramax's offices and kevin's patience was getting thin and Bob Weinstein was not a patient man to begin with. And things got a little heated. And in my memory, it was the moment that Kevin said, I'm going to take an Alan Smithy credit. That mightn't be true. But I think that was the trigger for what I know to be true, which is that whatever it was that Kevin said, possibly the Smithy credit decision, Bob got within like, two inches of Kevin's face and screamed, this means war, fucker! <laughs> and I thought, wow, glamour of the movies. Yeah. Uh, 
so yeah, it, it didn't end well. Um, yeah, I will say too, I guess, I think probably most people who listen to this podcast are aware of what the Alan Smithy credit is for oh, those sure, who yeah, aren't sure. though. Uh, that is directors who are in the DGA can petition the DGA. And I think it's actually hard to do. The DGA doesn't want to issue. You can't do it on a whim. Alice, right, Alice yeah, yeah. So you have to, I'm sure, I, I don't know what the process is. It's never to do it, but uh, I'm sure you have to like submit stuff, probably write a little thing, go to a little secret meeting somewhere and plead your case. Right. Um, and then they do grant it if they, if you can demonstrate that if your you movie is bad, how badly you've been treated. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. I think, I think wisely, they don't make it an automatic choice because, you know, everybody can have a pissed off day, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, <laughs> if you go in and I mean, because the, and the DGA doesn't want to be handing it out like candy, you know, and then you make friends with the producer again and you, Oh, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to be Alan <laughs> Smithy after all. So, yeah, they do make it. You've got to jump through a couple of hoops. I mean, it, I I wasn't privy to the, the exchanges. But, yeah, Kevin had to make his case. But, you know, I'm pretty <laughs> yeah. sure they are lending a sympathetic ear, you know. Well, yeah. Were you still uh, involved at the point? Because I do want to kind of go through some stuff that jumped out to Steve and I. But usually we really pick these apart because the only way people can find out about this stuff is from us, but you have published this screenplay. So I actually sure. want people to buy it who are really curious to get a lot of the uh, nitty gritty. But uh, and I think this is, you can already read this kind of stuff on Wikipedia, but the biggest difference is being that you guys wrote a linear, uh, as you say, trilogy of short films that started in the past, present, future. And then, you know, you read through the script and it's like, yeah, I mean, most of the pieces are still there in the finished version, but the biggest version is the idea that they expanded the future stuff to be this through storyline where the La Marchand in the, you know, 200 years in the future, it gets captured and is talking to a character named Rimmer uh, telling the story of his family. And it is interesting that even though, as I said, the pieces are all there, Right. Reading them as a linear thing, it has like a whole different feeling. And I'm sure they would have shown everything in the trailers, but there's something very right. interesting reading when you get to the point where you're like, oh, shit, we just jumped forward to outer space rather than that's how the movie begins. Like it has a whole different impact. Yeah, I, I think so. It, you know, you know that Miramax suddenly said, where the hell's Pinhead? Um and, and it is weird because they they had signed off. The, the, the script that I published is, I think, the fourth draft I wrote. Because, as you guys know, we went through the development process. There had been previous drafts uh, of this. But this, this was the one that got greenlit. This is the one that got the movie made. This is the one that uh, brought Kevin on board because he wanted to direct this. Um, so I was confused. I, and, and I have to say... This is sort of like this, sort of, you know, you, uh, when you edge into a brag. So I apologize. But it, <laughs> Go it's, for it. There's something about Bob Weinstein. Um, he was the biggest champion of my script, partly because, of course, you know, Miramax had not been in the business of horror movies. They were in the business of Oscar bait art house films. And so Bob's dirty little secret was that he loved the 18th century shit. Um, and he he was like my best friend briefly, you know. He said oh, those first thirty five pages, man. It's he really liked because it's, the first thirty five pages are kind of like a Miramax movie. 
Um, it's like Shakespeare in love with chains. Um, and he was a big proponent of it, really like this, until a focus group. And I, I, I don't know for a fact that the focus group said, where's Pinhead? But I would imagine the focus group were not Hellraiser. I mean, and, and it shouldn't be. You know, you're trying to make a commercial movie, obviously. Um, but the focus group were probably, as they always are, kids from the mall who um, took a free ticket earlier in the day, mightn't have seen the previous movies, but knew it was like, that's the shit with the pin face guy, right? <laughs> and so probably they then sat there watching no pin face guy. And so somehow Bob was very volatile. <laughs> he was very responsive to, um, to the sudden absence of uh, Pinhead from a script that he had greenlit. And I mean, I'm, I'm just sounding like I'm whining now, but um, that's what, what writers me. do. It was like, yeah, what, <laughs> what's your problem? Had you not read the script? <laughs> That's what I, uh, <laughs> I was like, you guys are the, you gave notes on all this stuff and that's right. where we wound up. And yeah. I will also say what I hate so much about focus testing is that they ask these leading questions. Oh, you, I'm sure they could yeah. have shown everyone your movie and then they, you just ask them, what do you think? And write it all down. But you know that they were like question for the group. Yeah. Do you feel that it took too long for Pinhead to show up? And that's when they're all like, right. oh, yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Would you have yeah, liked no, Pinhead? Now you mentioned earlier? it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, he could have shown up earlier. Um, like, these people oh, yeah. don't know. No, no. I mean, I, it's like, I always figure, why don't you just cut to the chase and make the first question? How much did you hate it? Yeah. They should just <laughs> ask them that, because that's what they're trying to gather. Well, it's like um, Pinhead is barely in the first movie. And, and, and with right. this one, it seems like a good full circle where Angelique is kind of like the Julia character where you're following her. And then eventually we get to Pinhead again. And those characters are going to be clashing. And it's like right. you, build, you build up to it. There's a reason why it takes us time to get to him. When we get to him, it's more powerful than the this usual suspects version they made by shoe warning <laughs> you know that her questioning this guy throughout the movie and and like josh says it totally takes away the effect when you see the future in the third act because it's almost like yeah. a cloud atlas hellraiser movie when you get to that third <laughs> act without yeah. seeing sci-fi throughout first the 17th century to modern day then you get to space yeah. it's like oh my god what would that have been like in the in i saw it in the theater i i wish uh, i could experience your script and there's as, so much more god, back. god bless you sir thank you there's <laughs> so much more in the uh 1800s section i mean I, oh, there's more well, in every one, section yeah. but we really lost uh this that, is the yeah. section where i feel like we lost the most interesting stuff and again all the pieces are there but like August, uh, who's the guy who we, I think you only see in one scene in the right, finished product, who's like working on the, the yeah. cadaver. It's like, you know, he's a the whole character has like a little subplot and is kind of helping out the toy maker and has this run in with this crazy troop of like demonic clowns who serve Angelique. That, and that's this that was whole Bob's amazing. Favorite, that was Bob Weinstein's favorite scene. Oh, this whole amazing sequence. Oh, those clowns, man, those clowns. <laughs> Wait, um, was that ever shot? No. It wasn't. Well, well I, I was. I just well, want to read this one little okay, paragraph. Yeah, yeah, read it. We'll get back to that. I was, uh, this isn't even about the clouds, but just when I'm envisioning this person who, yeah, like you said, for some reason, they're going to ILM to get their uh, effects breakdown. But then I'm reading 
paragraphs like this that I would have loved to see, but I'm just like, I guess if you're trying to pay top dollar, I understand why this sounds too expensive. There's also a whole scene that's not in the movie where, uh, also in this one, I don't know if this was a change that happened during the rewrites after this, even before they were really tinkering with it. But in the movie, Angelique is like a peasant girl that they bring off the street and kind of turn in this demon. But in your original script, she was already a demon that they summoned. Um, but there's I this mean, whole scene. The audience doesn't know she's a demon immediately. She's a princess yeah. from another country. But yeah, uh, she she's what hell used to be like. And she was the one who basically she tricked the guy, the right. you know, rich duke who summoned her, basically uh, tricked him into hiring this toy maker to build the box that was yes, going to get her my power. Well, and this you is whole guys have scene. actually read this. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so <laughs> impressed. Thank you. Uh, but there's this um, whole sequence where she kills eight gamblers using the first time sure. the puzzle box is used, but then she opens, she opens her corset to reveal herself. Her torso transforms. Suddenly it is covered in a score of screaming mouths and demonic eyes that stale, stare baefully out into the room. Her flesh ripples in constant motion. If full of impossible life, instantly the room is full of amplified sound of, but all this cool stuff. And there's a lot of it in the movie too, of her body, kind of like transforming. Right. And I'm guessing these were all the things that they just didn't have the budget to do. No, exactly. I mean, this, this is the awful thing. I mean, I, I don't know. This is why I'm puzzled by the focus group. My assumption that it was a focus group that upset Bob, because as I said, I mean, I'm not kidding that they, Kevin didn't get to shoot half the shit he wanted to shoot. So it's not like he gave them a, an, a even a, a finished assembly because I know there's like word prints knocking around on the on the gray market, but every time, like that scene you've just uh, read so beautifully, Josh, and thank you <laughs> for bringing for bringing the prose to life. Um, but you see that scene in the work prints, and as Angelique, uh, you know, does the demonic striptease, um, you get the superimposed title, you know, effects on back, um, <laughs> skulls erupt from chest. Um, because so it literally wasn't shot. I mean, they they never shot those things. So, well, but like you said, I have the work print. It's seven minutes into the work print, they have that scene. They just didn't insert some of the effect shots, but that scene right. is yes, shot. No, exactly. They shot the dialogue. Yeah, right. And they right. shot her facing them, and some of the stuff is in there, very little. But yeah. it's like, why didn't they put that in the movie and just? Pick, fill in those little it is because it's a the, great it's a great scene well, actually. and i think hellraiser 4 is a perfect example of i you know you don't want a movie to be too long i get that i hate mm-hmm. movies that are like unnecessary like especially like horror movies if i see they're yeah. over two hours i'm always like why that doesn't need it's to be that like, um, <laughs> it's like all things it's like the weird thing is a great three-hour movie feels like 90 minutes no it's true it and mm-hmm. a terrible 90 minute movie feels like three hours. Exactly. A movie's <laughs> length should be what the pacing dictates. And I think right. Hellraiser 4 is a perfect example of a movie that's trying to be short, but at the expense of inner, like it doesn't, it does it almost still feels then too long because the pacing's weird. Yeah. And there's all yeah. these great subplots because it's like basically it's like you, you if you trim out too much fat then there's like not enough to care about because i like in this there's like this whole subplot of angelique going to the toy maker le marchand and kind of like wooing him to make more stuff for her by promising him all these like riches and uh, powers demon. 
Yeah, and he goes to this masquerade ball, and there's extra stuff with his uh, pregnant wife. Uh, and also, I like that we, after the shit hits the fan, uh, and again, we won't go into too many details because people can buy the book, but I like that we, you establish how the derelict, the, 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 there's a guy in the street oh, yeah, who's like, right, you know, right. wonders Madam Spices from the Orient, and she just gives him the puzzle box, which I assume is kind of a plant then to like the first movie. Yeah, and, that's right. And then we see her get on a boat to America while she's pregnant and she has Lamarchand's like journals. And so you're kind of, you're threading through the idea of the Lamarchand legacy. And then even when we get to the present section, um, John Lamarchand is having dreams from like the sixties where his grandmother Mm -hmm. is like, Uh, you know, you're the one, you're the one they've been waiting for. You know, there's just more of a through line to the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know, yes. no, I know. Yeah. you don't know, but well, this is what kills me, too, is like you mentioned the clowns who I loved. And in Fango, and this is what kills me is like in Cinefantastique, the actress who played Angelique mentions the clowns in there. And then the clown has a bass drum that's like stretched human skin. And it's the Which face. Is what, what happened to Auguste? Um, they, because when you'd asked earlier, they didn't shoot. The big sequence, the 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 troop messing with Auguste, but they they show up briefly when hell comes to the chateau at the end of Act One, and it should have been sort of a horrible reveal to La Marchand. It's like here's your friend's face, we're banging it on a drum. Um, so yeah, they shot that, um, but it's just a bass drum with a face on it. Um, Rather than oh fuck, <laughs> there's my friend. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, uh, I mean Valentina, who's you know the actress who played Angelique, looks fantastic, and and Gary Tunnicliffe's makeup for Angelique is one of I mean obviously I'm prejudiced, but it really looks to me it seems one of the best Cenobite makeups in the whole franchise. Um, she's terrific, and. Um, and of course, Adam Scott launched his career in uh, in this movie as Jack, though I don't believe Adam talks about it much. In- <laughs> I'm sure he does if you bump into him. Get him drunk. Uh, he has a certain yeah. fondness, I think, for his sure. older, weirder phase of his career. Um, yeah. well, really quick, yeah, Fangoria has a picture of the drum face, and that's why one of the things when I went through right. the work print, I was desperately trying to find it, desperately trying to find any glimpse of the Clown, like you know, I was, oh, is it I, not even in? It's not even in there. It's not in this. The work print I have, it's not in. Unfortunately, it, the work print I have is just is very odd the way it's edited. But it has you that know, might be an interim. That might have been yeah after the, the Kevin's first cut. Yeah, grandmother's in it, but she's not in the theatrical. You know, oh. so it is interesting what made it in there. So that's why it's driving me crazy. What did they shoot and leave on the cutting room floor? Well, yeah. I'm trying to remember the sequence because um, Kevin Kevin did at least two assembly. I mean, admittedly, with, you know, effect shot to come, title cards throughout. But he did do at least two assemblies, um, which are probably out there. You know, both of them are probably out there, and they're slightly different. Um, but some of, I gather, I mean, I, I don't actually have copies, but I think there's also some kind of hybrid version were some because as, as you know what actually happened was they brought Joe Chappelle in 
to direct the mm-hmm. reshoots. And um, I'm trying to think when I did actually quit now because I th- and the pages that Joe shot were written by Rand Ravitch. Um, and I, it was, I think there's like 10 or 12 pages. And that's where the, the peasant girl origin for Angelique came from. In fact, as, as fellow writers, you'll appreciate the agony of this. Um, <laughs> I went, it wasn't the first time I saw it, but my friend, the late great horror writer, Dennis Etcherson, um, I went with him and his wife to see Hellraiser 4. And at one point, they're binding the peasant girl and they put some silk ribbon around her wrist and, and the decadent aristocrat says, so you won't bruise. <laughs> and Dennis leant over to me and said, good line. <laughs> <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> um, because I, you know, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. write that scene. No, that I, it hasn't got all the time. Too. But it's like, oh, <laughs> Dennis complimented me. Do, do I tell him? <laughs> Uh, we just did his uh, we did an episode on his script for the unmade Halloween four that sure. he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Part fours. Uh. <laughs> Part fours. Yeah. And uh, I guess. And so people that don't know the guy that came in and did the the reshoots, Joe Chappelle, he was the director of a Halloween movie. Right. So he must he was just working with Dimension on the curse right, of Michael he had, Myers he had a relationship. Yeah. 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 And I believe the writer that came in was also had a relationship with them as well with the Candyman sequel. And so, but did oh, you write? Right. Yeah. He did do the Candyman sequel. Yeah. And he went on, he had a bigger profile movie a few years later, The Astronaut's Wife. I think that, oh, was, that was him. Oh, interesting. I think that was him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then they, I guess, and then they, I don't know what they, sh- I mean, I'm guessing from what's missing in the work print is all that new, you know, opening with them questioning him. I'm believing is what they must have reshot. You know, it's funny. Well, it's so long since I were, I'd forgotten that that's how they, they structured the recast. I yeah. Mean, Cause yours opens. It was going to be a montage of Lamarchand making mm-hmm. the puzzle box, which yeah. I mean, one of the things that just sounds like, Oh, that seems like a real natural way to begin mm-hmm. A Hellraiser movie, especially about the guy who built the puzzle box. Um, But speaking of the wraparounds, because the middle section of the movie in the present, there's things missing, uh, like in the finished cut, that's where the Siamese twins first appear. Or in your cut, there aren't identical twin security guards. It's actually a pretty amazing scene of a female Mm -hmm. security guard who gets chased by one of the like hell beasts and has this like pretty awesome scene in the elevator mm-hmm. where she's like going hell, down. Yeah. And then the numbers keep saying like, you know, three, two, one, negative one, negative two, negative three, right. negative four. Negative, <laughs> and it just keeps going like farther oh, and farther so down good. to hell. Uh, people should buy the book to read that one. But yeah, that, so then really the next thing that's actually the most different of any section in the movie, like the first section is shortened a lot of stuff chopped out but the future stuff is like very different in part because you have uh paul lamarchand has a like assistant named corinne uh who's in all this movie with him and there's some stuff of them being like in a cell and talking to people but is it's she not in the movie no no I honestly can't remember. he's all by himself and then you have a character named rimmer who just gets killed randomly and is barely in it and for some reason they they must have liked that name like even though it sounds kind yeah. of dirty to me uh but uh, they decided what? like she's going to be the most important character who's talking to him in the cell and interviewing him 
Um, but I also want to say, uh, uh, not to interrupt you, but just I also love the way it starts out is we get a whole different like context of what's going on and we see him in his room and looking at the finished thing, I guess they tried to have a hint of this with the product, with the set dressing, but you really don't get it is that this is described where you see him and it looks like he's in an 18th century room. And then at some point he walks away and the camera goes with him and you realize that's just like one section. And now it looks like he's in, you know, a futuristic thing sure. where the way they have it, it's more like you look here in the future and he has like some antique furniture. Yeah. Uh, it's not at all the same. <laughs> I but got also a nice you have, chair my granddad left me. Yeah. I brought so it to space. <laughs> while he's like hanging out in his uh, 18th century style room, there's like a, he's listening to the news and I'll just read this as the news says, Fires burn unchecked in the forests on lunar on lunar one tonight, roaring wildly beneath the great meta glass canopies of the Pan Pacific Colony. Economic cut cutbacks that did away with the suits for settlers program are now being blamed for the colony's inability to simply turn off the air and thus douse the fire. Angry voices are being raised in Tokyo, particularly because colonists could be transported to the Mino space station if that trillion dollar facility was not a year behind schedule and, according to unconfirmed sources, not only out of radio contact, but out of its geostationary orbit, too. So you're kind of like understanding when we get to the space station that you know there's already something weird going thanks for, on thanks for picking the most irvingly explainer section of the whole script <laughs> i don't know i thought it was funny i'm just envisioning like just like but it's world building why is world building uh, this is what they yeah. this is what they say they want mm -hmm. uh and you also have a great production note to the readers of the script um because in the movie it's like this very cg looking you know kind of almost Babylon five style space station. But in the production note, you note uh, that this area talking about like the hallway, the characters are in and all areas, mainly corridors that are not function specific, have a half finished laser blasted look to them. They are grooves in the walls of the rock where corridors and walkways were blasted through unless specifically described. Otherwise everywhere on the Minos is rock, not steel or wood or plaster. And moments later, you do have one of the like uh, soldiers who come in is explaining right. the space station. Cause everyone's like, this looks fucking crazy. And he's like, it's pretty straightforward. Tractor beams capture a suitably small asteroid and then metal lasers form the structures, blah, blah. But I was like, oh, that's cool. So this, rather than this big metal space station, right. it's like an asteroid that's kind of retrofitted. Thought that was an yeah, interesting no, that, that idea. That's exactly what I meant. Yeah, sure, sure. See, science fiction, it's easy. <laughs> no, but it's so, it's, but it's so cool in this version, how it works in. And then again, the, the work cut, the work print I have has your ending in it, which is interesting. And the theatrical, the ending is different, you know? So I guess that's another thing they reshot. Sure. You know, because yeah, uh, yours ends with Lamar lives, right? going he... down with the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. He sends right. Kareen, his assistant, away in the skate pod and then has his big final showdown setting off his, you know, cat's cradle uh, design sure. that the Lamarchands have been working on now for centuries. Uh, yeah. And in the production, he he and Rimmer uh, jump in a ship and fly away as the ship oh, folds so they into really a box. See, yeah. This is I mean, genuinely, I, I in the movie because <laughs> yeah. you know it's painful. Yeah. Um, so they took the name of the other character and they folded Corinne and Rimmer into one 
person maybe Except there is just no Corinne. he did, he's been all by himself on the space station is it they kind of combined rimmer with i forget what he's called just like edwards who is just the guy yeah, who's guarding but, but sure. their cell and kind of asking them questions but it's really not at all the even the same vibe because in your script it's all about them being like you have to let us out of here so we can fight the Cenobites, right. who yeah. the soldiers don't even quite know are there sure. yet uh whereas uh, the finish thing, it's whole different because they capture him and while they're just kind of farting around the spaceship, he's clearly telling this very long story about the history <laughs> of his family to Rimmer. Yeah. And, then, and then, yeah, because it's, and it's also, it's just weird is there's no closure to Angelique and the Siamese twin Cenobites oh. in the theatrical version. Like one second you see them and they kill one of the soldiers and then you don't see them for the rest of the movie. And he has a face off with pinhead and it ends up being a hologram and he escapes with her, right. but your version and what they shot that's in the work print, they're all there in the same room together. Angelique, the Siamese twin and pinhead and him. And he goes down with, and it's a, and it's more closure to it, but I guess sure. they wanted, I guess those, the you know they wanted a happier ending with him escaping so they but it's just weird it's but like it's, so uh, i mean i'm genuinely <laughs> asking because like so he escapes alone not no, I, I thought they made it a sort of romantic ending i thought he escaped yeah. with the girl no he escapes with rimmer but i don't know how romantic it is they don't have a lot no, of time no backstory yeah. and yeah. yeah there's no yeah, yeah but yeah because there's hints at romance there's like a line in your script where Paul is talking yeah, to well, Corinne, he, he where he's basically like his life of science, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Like, he's just been like, I finally I, noticed your heart. I, I, I wish I didn't have to put right the sins of my uh, ancestors yeah. or whatever, by the way, can I just say, it's because you say Rimmer sounds um, suspicious. Um, <laughs> it, it does. Um, but it was, it was just a little inside wink. All the soldiers are former members of the dog company, which was the theater company oh. Doug Clive and I ran in the 1970s. That's how old we are, fellas. That's Is that how the company old that we made are. The, all the so, short films? Because there's, I've got um, Roscoe, Rimmer, Parker. So, so that's um, Mary. Do you watch Ted Lasso? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know the great assistant to Hannah Waddingham? I'm blanking yeah. on his name. I'm forgetting the character's name as well. But Mary plays his wife, and she's his wife in real life. So you've actually seen Mary Roscoe, who was a dog company alum in Ted Lasso. Um, <laughs> but so it was Roscoe, Ollie Parker, who became a director himself and is the brother of Nat Parker, uh, who is in a lot of those PBS mysteries and stuff. Um, so they were, there was just a little in joke for, for our former colleagues to hear their names. Was, mentioned. was yeah. dog company the one, did you, the one that made all the short films? I forget which DVD. It was primarily a theater on. company, but yeah, we, we made two. Well, did they finished one 8mm movie before I joined them? Because I would like to stress, I'm three full years younger than Clive and Doug. <laughs> So, uh, so I was a child when they, <laughs> but they made a, an 8mm movie called Salome, which was sort of an adaptation of the Oscar Wilde Salome. And then um, we made a 16mm movie called The Forbidden, a title that Clive later Just used. Candyman, yeah, the original yeah, Candyman, story. Yeah. Um, though this movie has nothing to do with <laughs> Candyman or, or The Forbidden. 
But so we did them. We never really finished the Forbidden. They, again, they they cobbled together a forty minute cut of it to release on video twenty years. I after feel like the those event. are special features on the DVD. I think one of the box sets is that right? Oh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that came in the uh, yeah. I'm not some original yeah. Hellraiser yeah. box set, right? Way back right. in the day. Funny that that is now back in the day. Uh, <laughs> when at the time it's like, wow, DVDs, the future. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> well, you know, it's the the second um, film struck went down. Everybody regretted selling their DVDs, yep. didn't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The physical uh, media, it has it has its values. <laughs> well, maybe before we wrap up, Steve, you sure. said you had a question about one of the Hickok scripts. Oh yeah, I did. And and what oh, yeah. one more really quick? Was there another thing I just kind of found? Was there ever going to be a version with angelic cenobites? Does that sound familiar? That uh, sounds like Clive two drinks in on any average. <laughs> All right, we will. Don't you think it'd be wonderful, people? Wonderful if <laughs> angels, angels. We suddenly realized they I, are. I, I don't know. They're you know, angels right. to some, demons to others. There They're you already go. Yeah, from the get go. <laughs> it was planted right. from the get go. Oh yeah, yeah. So during during the time of 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 this movie, uh, you were working on a script called Invasion Earth with Tony Hickox. Oh sure, yeah. Um. That one, with, uh, as you, you know, that hasn't been made. Um, that was, this is, so, again, I'm assuming your viewers are probably screenwriters or interested in, I mean, this Very is much sort of, so, I think. Okay, then this is the kind of story um, that you dream of happening because it's like a cliche that never happens. But, um, Tony and I, we actually, we wrote, I think, six or seven scripts together. And we were very lucky. We, we sold most of them oh, uh, nice. or at least, or optioned them at least. Um, but we were in, again, for, because of Tony's mom and Coates's uh, prior work relationships, she knew the producer, Ed Pressman. Um, and he had something in development and he, he was, he was hearing pitches, you know, he wanted takes on it. Um and I genuinely can't remember what it was, but Tony and I went in, uh, we, we prepared, you know, the way you do, <laughs> got drunk, made something up. We'll wing it. It'll be great. So <laughs> we went in and we pitched whatever the take was to Ed and he wasn't having any of it. And I, who can blame him? I think we'd spent about an hour. Um, and, uh, but because he's friends with Anne, uh, he wasn't going to be rude. So he said, nah, I don't know, guys. And you got anything else? And then Tony, asshole, turns to me <laughs> and says, tell him, tell him about that one. And I, I'm like, what, what? You know. And he whispered a word. And I, I said, we, we don't have a pitch ready. We, no, tell him, tell him. <laughs> um, fucking director, you know, it's like, do it. So... So we didn't have a pitch or a story, but this is literally, this is what they, you know, this is the courtesy exchange at the end of it. The meeting's done. We failed. We haven't pitched this thing. He doesn't like it, but he's making a plight noise. Um, and the theory is that what usually happens is, hey, that sounds great. When you write it, let me take a look. So I turn to Ed Pressman and say, which is all we have at this point. Um, well, um, what we thought, 
this will tell you how long ago it was because CGI was the new thing, fellas. CGI, right? We're in the CGI age. So I said, um, well, we think it's time for now that we've got CGI, we think it's time for the first of the giant insect movies of the 90s. And Ed says, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, like Jurassic Park, but you remember them. You remember Tarantula? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, that, a giant <laughs> insect movie with CGI insects. And Tony says, it's called Invasion Earth. And I said, yeah, it is. I've never fucking heard that phrase in my life. Um, and Ed looks at us both, and I think, oh, Christ. And then he says, and I swear, he picks up his phone and says to his assistant, get me business affairs. And we sold it right then in the room. He commissioned us. He, he hired us to, to write Invasion Earth. Now, did the movie get made? No, it didn't. But you as a, as a screenwriter, both of you as producers and writers, You'll know it's like that's the dream. Yeah, it's one line, and the guy <laughs> says, "Get me business affairs," and you make the deal in the fucking room. Wow! So, but it happened once. It did yeah. happen once. <laughs> wow! But, um, I, I think Steve, the reason you might see it is, and again, I think it was Tony just being mischievous. At some point, he must have forked up the extra money to be on IMDb Pro instead of just IMDb. I've never paid for anything <laughs> because you can post project and development. And mm -hmm. because I think it still says on both our IMDb pages in development, Invasion Earth. It's not. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I found it somewhere else too. Yeah. It's what a trip. Wow, that's a great story, though. Yeah. It was, well, you know, we had a we wrote the script and Ed liked it. I mean, we I, I wish they'd made it. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun, um, and I still think the world is starved for giant insect movies. You know, mm -hmm. but... well, Absolutely. it may not surprise you. Um, specifically in the '90s, giant insects movies have come up a lot on this podcast. We've never done an episode just oh, about well, a script, right? Because but... this, I, I swear to God, this was pre-Starship Troopers. This was, <laughs> but but Starship Troopers did kind of kill it. We'd done, I think, two drafts for Ed. Um, something else happened, but Starship. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stepping. No, on no, but I mean, uh, go, go but, ahead. But. but very much in the like atomic era inspired. Right. Right. Uh, it, it it is interesting that it just seemed like the industry was kind of hungry for it, but none ever got made. So. None of them ever got made. <laughs> uh, I want I want to trace the dates back. I think Hickox and I were ahead of the curve. I, I, I'm going to claim we were first on that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, except I think all monster kids, you know, everybody, my, I mean, you guys too, but the real monster kid generation, the Fari Ackerman generation, it's like, yeah, of course we all think that. We, we want those movies. We, we want them to have <laughs> never stopped making them and, mm -hmm. uh, and still be making them now, you know. No, of course, because we had the Empire of the Ants still in the set. I grew up in Empire of the Ants and Kingdom right. of the Spiders and all that. Sure, you know? sure. So it totally makes sense. But, well, I um, think that is a great place to wrap things up. Okay. I want to remind people that they should definitely go buy the published mm -hmm. version 
of uh, Hellraiser Bloodline. Uh, I assume you can just get that on Amazon or any place oh, like yeah, that, absolutely. right? I know Steve oh, got yeah, the Kindle yeah, I mean, version. I'm on Facebook and Twitter under my own name. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, that... I've peppered them with links. <laughs> You'll find the link to the Amazon page quite easily if you find <laughs> me on social media. Cool. Like, I want to give a shout out really quick. Uh, as Peter knows him, Jim Coons, who's directing the novelization documentary. We post every single Encyclopocalypse novelization on our Twitter and Instagram at Tide and Film. The fact that they are they're putting out they put out your Wishmaster, they put out your script, they put out they read they put out Fright Night, which is like one of my favorite novelizations. It's 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 awesome, and we do. Jim is a huge fan, and he posts them, takes pictures of them in his massive collection. And <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I love those posts, and it's great. But, you know, I always like the one you feature face out, but I'm always fascinated yeah, by the spines in, of the ones uh... next to it. <laughs> if I zoom in and say, oh, I didn't know they did a novelization of that one. Uh, I was great. impressed that I was at a used bookstore outside of LA. And when I usually don't even bother texting Jim when I find novelizations to be like, do you have this one? Because of course he does. This right. one was for like a 70s Disney movie about like girls and horses. And I'm like, I don't even know what this movie is. So maybe Jim <laughs> didn't have it. And he didn't. I was so proud of myself Whoa. that I was able to acquire a new one Score. for him. <laughs> nice. Yeah. nice. Uh, I will also say, speaking of social media, if people want to follow us, we're on we're best movies never made on Instagram and at never made film on Twitter. And we like to post pictures uh, of concept art. I wish we had the storyboards you talked about. Um, Mike Plugs for Hellraiser 3. Yeah, yeah well, that would be amazing. I, maybe, I wish I had them too. Uh, maybe someone oh, will hear this uh, and yeah. has access to them. You never know. Yeah. I also recommend that people get the Electric Now app. It is a free app that allows you to watch movies, TV shows, and more importantly, video of our podcast and all the podcasts on the yeah. Electric Surge network. I'd like to thank everyone at the network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Stephen Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.